I'd like to start by talking about Lord of the Rings. It's a good pre- one for a preacher because if you haven't read the book, you'll probably have seen the film, so it's always a good one to use. There's this scene in Fellowship of the Ring, the first book film, um, where Frodo is trying to leave the rest of the Fellowship behind. He gets into the rowboat and he's rowing away when Samwise spots him. And he rows to the edge of the water and he starts calling for Frodo to, not to leave him behind. And Frodo's still rowing, so Sam starts to wade into the water. And he can't swim, but it's getting deeper and deeper and he keeps running into the water until he starts to drown. And at this point, Frodo reaches in and pulls his friend out into the boat. And then Sam explains why he couldn't leave his friend behind. He says... I made a promise, Mr. Frodo, a promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Ganji. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. And as the story unfolds, we discover that if they hadn't stuck together, if those two hobbits hadn't remained in their friendship, hadn't worked together, they would never have got the mission done. They couldn't have done it without each other. Frodo admits it later. I wouldn't have got far without you, Sam. It's because they protected each other, they remained of each other, they abided together, that they actually managed to achieve their mission. And today we're talking about abiding in Jesus, remaining with Jesus. And I've used the Lord of the Rings analogy because it's about friendship. And I'm going to come back to this idea that remaining in Jesus is about remaining in his friendship. But before I do that, I think I need to put it in context. Because we really don't understand the verse unless we see it where it comes in the Bible. So if you've still got your Bible open, you might like to flip back a couple of chapters because you'll see that you'll see where this comes in the Gospel of John. Back in chapter 12, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. And that's the time that he arrives for the last time. He arrives on a donkey. Okay, it's the beginning of that week, that exciting week, that terrible week where he's going to end up on the cross. And then, and then back where we are, in chapter 15, it's part of this whole section called the Last Supper Discourses. And in this section, it's a collection that John's made of all the things that were said at the Last Supper. Now, it used to confuse me that, it used to confuse me that this was in the Last Supper Discourses, because right at the end of chapter 14, there's this little line that says, Rise, let us be on our way. But then the very next sentence, Jesus is still talking for another couple of chapters. It used to baffle me. I mean, did he say, let's go, guys? And then he carried on talking while they put their coats on? Or, you know, did did someone just put that in the wrong place? But when I was reading for this sermon, I found an answer to the question. What scholars think is that Jesus and the disciples said the first bit, Rise, get, let's go on our way. And they got up and started walking toward the garden after the supper. And as they were walking, they would have passed by the temple courts. And around the gate of the temple courts, there was a vine. It was huge. It was a statue of a vine that carved all the way around the temple courts. And it was so big that there had bunches of grapes hanging from it with the size of people. And this thing wasn't just a statue. It was made of gold. So it was quite eye-catching. And the thought is that as Jesus was walking, he saw this vine. And he stops under the vine to use it as a visual demonstration of what he's talking about with them. And so these next few chapters, this, this section we've just read, is what he was saying, standing there under this vine in the temple courts before his disciples. And where they're on their way to is the garden of Gethsemane. I can never pronounce that right, I apologise. To the garden. And at the garden he's going to pray, and that prayer is going to be interrupted by Judas coming with the soldiers to arrest Jesus. 
and they're going to take him to the cross. At this point, when he talks about being the true vine, he has less than 24 hours left to live. And so what he's doing is he's preparing his disciples for what's going to come up. And the whole Last Supper discourse is about getting them ready because their relationship is about to change. Everything is about to change. I don't know if anyone else is a fan of Sherlock, the BBC series. Uh, This week's episode has some good connection with this theme of your relationship changing. Because Sherlock uh, was struggling throughout the episode with the fact that his friend John Watson was about to get married. Which meant their entire relationship was going to be altered, nothing was going to be the same again. And he makes this best man speech about how much John means to him. And then at the end, he makes this vow to the newlyweds, this vow to the couple, that he will always be with them. And it reminds me of the Last Supper discourses, because Jesus promises he will always be with his disciples, even though that relationship is about to change. What he tells them is to abide in me as I abide in you, or remain in me as I remain in you. Abide just means stick with me, remain with me, stay with me. And he tells them in chapter 14 that he's going to abide in them through his Holy Spirit. So he's going to be with them in a really real spiritual sense, living within them. And then in response to this, he says, I'm going to be with you. You need to be with me. And he makes this request in the context of friendship. It's all through the the latter half of this passage. It was all about, if you're my friends, do this. If you're my friends, if you do that. I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends, he says. And I think friendship is a word I need to unpack this morning. Because I don't think we understand friendship in the way Jesus was using that word. I think we use friendship as a really loose term nowadays. I'm going to blame Facebook as one of the major culprits for this. Because... On Facebook, you're encouraged to just list everyone you've ever met as a friend, a colleague, an acquaintance, someone you haven't been in contact with for years is a friend, according to Facebook. And you can have hundreds of these friends. And when your list of friends gets so unmanageable, then it's pretty normal just to go through and cull people, unfriend them, um, which is horrible language to use. But it shows that we don't really think of them as friends. We're misusing the term entirely. What Jesus means by friendship is a deeper friendship. He means the sort of people that we confide in and trust. The sort of people we share our lives with. Those people your children call auntie and uncle, even though they're not actually related, because you're so close you might as well be family. The people that, if they had an emergency, you would drop everything for them. And you know that they would do the same for you. These are the sorts of deep friendships that Jesus is talking about. And every friendship has unspoken expectations laid on it. So if someone betrays a confidence you've told them or fails to visit you on your hospital bed, you feel hurt because they've not lived up to those unspoken obligations that your friendship lays on them. I think a really good example of friendship loyalty being betrayed is in the story of Arthur and Lancelot. Because when when Lancelot has his affair with Arthur's wife, Guinevere, what really packs a punch isn't that he's betraying his king. It isn't that he should know better than to mess with married women. What really packs the punch in that story is that it's his friend he's betraying. Jesus, when he asks us to abide in him, is asking us to keep friendship's loyalty with him 
And loyalty. Loyalty is another word that we struggle with because I don't think our society has a sense of permanency anymore. I think we're encouraged as consumers to get bored with things, to replace things, to move on from things. And if we're not moving on from something, the implication is it's because we're scared or because we're apathetic or we just haven't got around to finding the better thing yet. We're not good at sticking with things. Even marriage, 42% of marriages in the UK end in divorce. Even when we vow at the beginning of them we're going to make it last a lifetime, we don't manage to make things last a lifetime. I've got a special plea to the older generation because I think the older you are, the better you understand permanency and loyalty because you haven't been taught like the younger ones about consumerism quite as much and haven't fallen in for this lie that we need to replace everything. Older generation here, if you think that's you and you understand loyalty, then I'd like to encourage you. Rejoice when you have a wedding anniversary, when it's a massive number, tell us so that the younger generation can see that and be encouraged and see that it's achievable, that it's desirable, and that it's an aspiration that we can have to stay with our partners as long as you have. If you've had a friendship that's lasted for years, do likewise. Rejoice in it. Show us what it means to have a friend that sticks with you throughout the years. And if you've had an abiding faith that you've walked with Jesus all your days, again, tell the younger generations. Tell us. Help us to rejoice with you and see what a joy it has been to stick with Jesus on life's path all this time. We need to see it modeled so that we can live it too. I'm kind of preaching to the choir with that bit, aren't I? Being loyal to Jesus is not boring as time goes on. It's an unfolding adventure. And Jesus isn't a travel companion who you're going to just have to tolerate and get really fed up with. But he's the one that you will rely on on your walk. The one who will enrich your life. But despite that, people do leave Jesus behind. I think our relationship abiding in Jesus is a bit like holding hands. Jesus doesn't let go. But have you ever tried to hold hands with someone who keeps their hand flat? It's normally a child if they're doing this. They keep their hand flat and then they can slide out your grip. No matter how hard you grip, they just slide away and wander off. And our relationship with Jesus is like that. Jesus doesn't let go of us, but people get fed up with God. They hit a road bump in their life and they decide that it's not time for God anymore. Or they move away from the congregation where they were with God and don't bother to replace it. And they wander away so easily. We need to encourage people to abide in God. And losing contact with Jesus is pretty similar to losing contact with friends. I've been living in halls at university. And so that means I'm away from my friends and family for months at a time. And I've discovered it's really easy to lose contact just because you forget that you need to maintain those links. Even my sister, who I'm closest with in the world, I found myself missing her because I'd forgotten that you actually need to stay in touch. You have to make an effort to do so. You can't just assume your relationship will remain. You have to make a really concerted effort when you're living away from someone to sit down and write that letter or make a Skype call every week. Otherwise, you just lose contact with people and they drift out of your life. And Jesus, we drift out of his life too if we don't take care to abide in him. Now, the children helped answer earlier, how do we abide in him? We abide in Jesus by reading the Bible, praying and worshipping. And maybe because it's such an easy answer that a child can answer it, is why we don't do it, because we don't want to be childish. 
But that's a really foolish fear to have because if we abide in Jesus, we find everything we need for our lives. Firstly, we find love. That's here in verse 9, I think. I haven't written down nine. Yeah. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Everyone needs to be loved. Every human does. A child who doesn't have love tries to get attention instead because it's the best substitute. A teenager who hasn't got love will be the ones looking for love in relationships and sex. And if an adult hasn't found love in their life, then... I guess by the time you reach adulthood, you get used to the fact there's this chasm of need inside you and either find ways of dealing with it or ignoring it, but every human needs to be loved. Jesus loves. And if you need proof of that, that's in this verse too. Jesus says there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And Jesus in the cross laid down his life for you. That is the greatest expression of love for you possible. And if you haven't yet experienced Jesus' love, I encourage you to embrace it, because it's there for you. And if you haven't felt his love recently, I encourage you to draw closer to Jesus, so that you can experience his love. We don't experience love unless we draw close. I love my friends, and they love me, but unless we spend time together, we don't experience that. And it's the same with Jesus. Because you see, Jesus abiding in our hearts isn't just some airy understanding, oh yeah, he's my friend, I get that. It's a real experience that comes when we draw close to him. Jesus also gives us security and strength as we abide in him. If we are rooted in his love, we'll experience strength. And in that Ephesians verse is where it talks about it. I'm running short on time, so I won't read it again, which I was going to, but... Instead, I'm going to tell you about this tree in my parents' garden. Now, it's been there for years. We built a tree house in it when I was younger. But uh, in these storms we've been having, this bad weather over these last few months, the tree has fallen down. Well, it's mostly fallen down. What it's actually doing is leaning at about a 40-degree angle, and it can't fall any further. Despite the weight of the tree and the weight of the tree house, the roots are so strong that it's stopping it from actually collapsing. And being rooted in Jesus is like that. If you're rooted in his love, then no matter how much the storms of life buffet you, he won't let us fall. If we abide in Jesus, we have love, and that love gives us security. And it also gives us purpose. The true vine verse talks about fruit, being fruitful, which means that we have something to do in God. And I don't mean he gives us tasks. That's that's not it. What I mean is that our lives become a part of the bigger picture. We go from being a little branch to being a part of the entire vine, the entire story of what God's doing in the world. And that, having our lives in perspective like that, it's like going from being a colored, being a, a sketch to being a full color picture. It gives us perspective, it gives us meaning, it gives us fullness to be abiding in Jesus and see our lives in him. And the last thing that I think it gives us It says that, it's in the verse 2, verse 11. I have said these things so that my my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Why do we make friends? We don't make them because we want to find a support network or because we think we need to find someone to love us. We spend time with friends because we enjoy it and it makes us happy. And sometimes we overlook the fact that spending time with God just makes us happy. It brings us so much joy to dwell on God. And we don't need to to overlook the fact, that fact. So, 
Abiding in Jesus is an effort, but maintaining any relationship is an effort. And friendships offer us happiness, security, someone to rely on, and love. A relationship with Jesus brings us joy, security for life and for beyond, a strength that bears us through any storm, and a love so intense that it sacrifices for you. Jesus holds his hand with you as you walk through life. Grip his back. <laughs>